0: What a delight. All I have is Christ. I tell you, until you come to the point where you are comfortable singing a song on a Sunday morning with the saints, where in the lyrics is hell bound. I think it's the only song I think I've ever sung in church that had hell bound in there. But what a promise. That's where my path of destruction was leading me. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I wasn't reared to fear the Lord. I didn't have parents that loved God. I had a praying grandmama that would came and that came to the house and would pick me up and take me to church as a young child. That's where the gospel was sown into my life. That's where I heard about this God that knew everything, that created everything, that ruled over everything, and knew everything I'd ever done, every word I'd ever said, every thought I'd ever had, and still loved me. And out of a broken home with my parents divorcing when I was very young, invited me into the family of God. The whole, complete, loving family of God. What a Savior. But my way wasn't just getting me out of community or getting me, you know, on a bad track. I was heading for destruction as a teenager. I was heading for destruction. I'll never forget that Sunday morning, second Sunday, February 1993, where the Lord radically reached down, transformed my life, saved me, changed me. I heard that gospel message and I couldn't wait to get down and pray. That was a church that invited you to come forward to pray. Nothing serious about that and not serious about another way. It's just the way I got in. And so I, I went forward and, and prayed and asked God to take my tattered and broken life and make something beautiful out of it for His glory. I wanted to serve Him and follow Him and, but I was a sinner in need of a Savior. He saved me. Anybody else saved this morning? Thankful for salvation? Say amen. amen. Praise God he's still in the saving business. Hallelujah. Take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 3 this morning and you'll see why the reading was so short. Some of you have read ahead, but if we, I was going to have Jeremy in that fantastic voice, which by the way will be how I sound in heaven. But if Jeremy was going to read in that timber this morning and work through all of Nehemiah 3, it's a whole lot of what he just read. And this guy came and came and built, and this one did that, and this one did that, and it seems a bit like a, okay, okay. You hit that in your daily reading, and you kind of say, hmm, um, probably not a life-changing nugget here for me, but it's on the reading plan. Let me go ahead and check the box by faith and see what's coming next. None of you have ever done that in a daily reading plan, have you? You come to a genealogy, or you come to some robust description about how they hemmed the garment of the priest on the lower half in the temple that stood on the left side, or you read about the horn of the fourth beast around the, yeah, don't talk to your friends that don't know Jesus about that. They'll think you're crazy, and they're right. Um, Not necessarily life-changing text there, but there's something there. Can I just say something to you? It may seem like you come to text sometimes that's unimportant, but I want to remind you of the principle here, and I'll hit the verse in just a minute, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. In fact, in Matthew chapter number one, well, let me back up. What's your favorite Christmas story? Where do you go when you think about the Christmas story, the nativity? Everybody goes to Luke chapter two. We don't start in chapter one. I don't know why. It's just because that's where the kids' Christmas play starts, right? Nobody ever says, you know, when I'm thinking about the story of Christmas and Jesus, I want to go to Matthew 1 and read the genealogy, right? A few people do that, but let me tell you about a man named Lon Solomon, who was raised a mainline, in a mainline Jewish home. Lon grew up, and uh, when he hit his teenage years, he began a path that he describes as active self-destruction and self-absorption. He gets to college, and he's partying, he's drinking, he's doing drugs, he's in immoral relationships... And, uh, but then he finds that that doesn't fulfill him. He knows that God has, he knows that he needs meaning rather and purpose in his life, but he didn't know how. He went back to trying religions. And I don't just mean, when I say religions, I don't mean Baptist versus Presbyterian. I mean like Eastern religions and all kinds of philosophical uh, roadmaps to try to discover and discern truth and who he was. He even tried to go back to mainline Judaism to no avail. He winds up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Any hills fans? He was on the campus of UNC. No? Okay, moving on. <laughs> on the campus of UNC, and there he heard a street preacher of all things clearly preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It gripped his heart. He winds up in a Bible study. They're studying this passage and that passage, and they get to Matthew 1, and the text comes up, Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. You know what Lon Solomon's testimony is? Matthew chapter 1 one changed my life. Why? Because he was raised in that mainline Jewish home. He knew all the stories of everybody in the genealogy of Jesus. And here's how he tells it. They all took me to Jesus. Let me remind you of the principle here from the Bible. Second, Timothy tells us clearly, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It says all scripture is breathed out by God. It doesn't say all scripture will give you all the feels. It doesn't say all scripture will light your fire or set you ablaze. Um, but it does say that it's all inspired by God, and all of it is profitable. To that end this morning, even though this is expository preaching, please don't fret yourself if you've looked ahead. We're not gonna pick apart every name and the origin of every name. Uh, To quote a modern-day phrase, ain't nobody got time for that, right? And I'm not sure that would be super helpful for us this morning. There are some lessons we can clearly see in Nehemiah chapter 3 and 4. I've entitled the message this morning, The community that works while the nations rage. The community that works while the nations rage. Nehemiah prayed and planned and researched and presented the need to those around him, and now people are showing up to get the work done. I think back to Pastor D in the earliest days of Grace Covenant Church, even before it was officially called Grace Covenant Church, when it was just, I don't want to say an idea, to seem like it was something that popped into his head, but something that the spirit was doing in his heart and life. And he's thinking, what if? Lord, are you calling me to this? Then he gets the assurance. The Lord's calling me to this. And then he, he gets some help around him. God sends him some precious people to help him. So he's not, it's not just him and Linda standing on a street corner hoping somebody will show up, but God puts some people with them, and, and I can only imagine, Darren and I haven't talked about this thing specifically, but I can only imagine You know, it's not quite like Field of Dreams. You know, if you build it, they will come. You wonder, well, they they might come one Sunday, but will they come back the second one? I've often wondered that. Thank you, some of you that have come back a second and third. It's been a blessing. Mm -hmm. Nehemiah has presented it, and people are on board. They've showed up, and they're ready to work. Jerusalem's walls, by the way, if you're just joining us, have been broken down. The city's in ruins, and the city's very strategically important for the people of God. It means a lot. The gates are broken. The fence and the wall is down. I mean, what good is a wall if it's broken? Do any of you have a dog inside of a fence? When a big tree fell in our yard, I mean, I don't, Ashley, help me out. Mark, this big? I don't know how big the base was. It was massive, massive. I'm a little guy, so for most of y'all, I'm only doing this size shape. I get it, but for me, it was massive. It was a massive tree. I think it was probably at least, how tall, 50 feet? 10,000 10, feet tall. Evangelastically speaking, very tall. It was taller than Zach. Let's go there, okay? I know most people are to me. Moving on. So this tree fell, and it took out two other trees. It took out part of my shed, and it damaged my fence, and guess what happened? Bruno bolted. We feed him, we care for him, we give him meds when he needs it, we've fixed wounds for him. Well, Lauren's fixed quite a few wounds for him, but we've tended this dog, and the first time the fence is open, he bolts. What good is a fence if it's broken? My neighbor says he can come stay in ours. Ours is fixed, so we go over to the neighbor's. The neighbor's got a gap underneath one of his, it's this big. Bruno went, hey, catch you later. Shot under that. Yeah, dogs, give me a break. The walls are broken for the city that's supposed to be a fortress a protection for God's people. And groups have gone back and tried to rebuild, but they've not been successful. And so God sends Nehemiah. What are the kind of people that God uses when things like this are going wrong? Well, here's what we've already learned about Nehemiah. He was concerned for the glory of God and for God's people. He had a prayerful heart that engages in persistent prayer for others with others and claim the promises of god nehemiah also was dedicated and involved and ready and willing to be used he didn't just espouse the idea he actually showed up to do the work in every generation this is the kind of woman and man that god uses to do his bidding I want to give you a header for chapter 3. You probably got a subtitle in your Bible. It's better than mine. I get that, but I can't just copy that and say I did something, right? So here's what I would title chapter 3, Real People Doing Real Work. Real People Doing Real Work. Let's learn what we can from the people and the pattern that show up in chapter 3. I'll move through chapter 3 quickly. There are a couple of verses we'll highlight. Again, you'll see it. I want you to go back and read chapter 3 and 4 after the sermon when you have time and take the notes you get from this morning, add your own notes if you like, and just work through the text and see if this is helpful for you. I want to tell you something that we find out very quickly when we get into it. God uses anybody from any station in life to do his work. Is anybody in here encouraged by that? You don't have to be a master level theologian. You don't have to be an academic theologian to be used by God. You don't have to be a master level uh, landscaper to crank the mower that we own here and mow the church grass, right? You just don't have to. You don't have to be uh, an expert in all things to be used by God in some areas. Who are some of the people that God uses? Well, when you work through chapter three, some people he describes as just the men of Jericho in verse one, In verse 8, he describes goldsmiths and perfumers, perfumers. Now, I would have liked to have seen perfumers building a wall, just going to be honest. I hate there's not a YouTube of that, but uh, perfumers. Men and women, young and old. In verse 12, it says Shalom and his daughters are used to help rebuild the wall. Rulers of large districts, Levites are used in verse 17. Rulers of small districts. In fact, I'm not sure what this is, but rulers of Haskell. Half districts, maybe that's like assistant to the regional manager, not clear on that. The priests and the men from outside the city, temple servants, gatekeepers, merchants from all walks of life, from all socioeconomic statuses, God uses these people to do his work, different skill sets, different abilities, different strengths. I'm just betting those daughters that were used might have been stronger than the perfumers. It's just a hunch I have, right? Because if they're called out and singled out here, I'm thinking they had some muscle to get it done. Yeah? So all of these people are used by God. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the church? I mean, we're in Nehemiah, Old Testament book here, way back, ancient text. We're removed from the time of this text. We're removed from the geography of this text. We're even removed from the customs of this text but doesn't it just come alive today? God uses people from all walks of life to do His work so that He gets all the glory. Here's another lesson you learn. Everybody was responsible to work, but some did more than others. Some did more than others. The priests are mentioned more than once here, and they weren't just doing priestly things. Like They didn't just put on their priestly garments and you know, sing priestly songs and say priestly things. No, they were building walls and gates and they show up in multiple places as you work through chapter three. In fact, uh, Baruch is named, uh, has, having repaired at least two sections. What's that lesson for today? Well, some people will always do more than others, right? Some people in the church will always do more than other people do, but, but if everybody does their share... It keeps those doing more from getting burned out. You ever met somebody that was tired of church? Please don't nod like, yeah. (laughs) and don't hit your wife's face, talking to you, honey. No, don't do that. I mean, people who were just being run ragged by the church they said yes, and, and the church was like, oh, great. They said yes. Pastor D was joking the other day as we were thinking about something. He said, be, you know, in some churches, you have to be careful saying yes, you'll fill in one Sunday, because 20 years later, they'll find your replacement, right? We, we try not to do that here, but we're grateful to those who serve long-term. But, but you can be run ragged by church. How does that happen? Well, some are going to do more in the church. It's just the way life is. Some have more capacity and and, and more skills and ability that match a certain need that's going on in the church. But it doesn't mean that, oh, good, they'll take care of it. No, all of us have to do our part. All of us work together so that we keep the load joyful and the work joyful. We need to serve God with our strengths, working together like any good team and being willing to move out of our comfort zones in order to serve the Lord because the merchants weren't just merchanting. The perfumers weren't making perfume. They were all doing the work. That needed to be done as we look at the pattern of work I want you to notice this from chapter 3 important work doesn't always mean pleasant work I'm thinking about a job that you do that I won't share every Sunday morning for us thank you important work doesn't always mean pleasant work some will lay down their pride and serve with humility Look with me now at the text. Look at verse 14 with me, okay? Verse 14. Let's look at what's happening here in verse 14. As you get through where these fantastic folks are serving, Malkijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. I'm currently working on my next degree in study. some of you are like, great, that should be helpful, right? No, I'm currently working on my next degree in ministry and I'm in a course right now and uh, it teaches us, the course is, you know, hermeneutics, I don't think it's named after anybody named Herman, but it teaches us, you know, how to deeply dive into the text and, and get from the Greek and Hebrew to application, where we can use it today, right? I've had a course like this before, but uh, not for this particular degree, I got to tell you, I didn't need my hermeneutics training to process the kind of work he was doing at the dung gate. I don't want to be indelicate, but I'm just telling you, there are some jobs that life demands of us that are not always pleasant, but they're important, and they have to be done. Parents can easily attest to this, right? When our kids kind of buck up at us, sometimes you want to go like, "You don't even know what I've done." For Not that you're about to puff up at him, I'm just saying, like, maybe that's just me, y'all pray for me. But, but there are some unpleasant things that have to happen. But we live in a society and a culture that says, no, 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 you only follow your dreams. Don't do anything that anybody uh, tells you to do that, that you don't want to do. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. Wrong. That's not real life. That's not real life. And by the way, you won't get ahead in life being that way. Don't let pride keep you from serving Some people thought their status exempted them from the work. Look with me at Nehemiah 3, verse 5. Let's see some folks that thought they were exempt. And next to them, now that was Zadok and the uh, banner repaired, uh, a section of the wall. And then next to them, next to Zadok, verse 5, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. You may not do a lot of underlining in chapter 3 of your Bible of Nehemiah, let's be honest. That one's worth underlining. They would not stoop to serve their Lord. Don't let pride keep you from the joy of serving the Lord and serving one another. Don't let pride keep you from doing, as Mike Rowe would say, a dirty job that needs to be done. Because it's essential to get done. Just imagine if everybody at Grace Covenant only did the pleasant things. Got news for you. The church would be straight up nasty when we got here on Sunday. Can I just be real? The bushes would be completely overgrown. I hope you noticed they were trimmed this week. A church member came up to me. I like this kind of work. When somebody comes up to you, shakes your hand on a Sunday, and says, the bushes look bad. And then winks at you and says, I'll be here Tuesday to take care of it. And was here to take care of it. And by the way, Steve's 107 years old and did it. So thank you, Steve. Just kidding. So I'm just grateful for that. But if we only do pleasant things, then the things that need to get done don't get done. Important work isn't always pleasant. Don't let pride keep you from serving. And and listen carefully to me. Don't let pride keep you from letting God do some work in your life. Because there may be some unpleasant things in your heart that need to be dealt with. And you need to put aside your pride and let God do a work on your heart. People that do meaningful life-changing work for others are people who stoop low when they need to. Can I give you a New Testament example? In John the 13th chapter, the disciples have come in for a meal together and Jesus looking around notices that their feet have not been washed. Jesus, the son of God, the son of man, the king of glory, the ruler, the soon-to-be-crucified and, praise God, resurrected king and soon-returning king gets up from the table where everybody's seated, probably wondering, well, this is an important work. We've got to do important work. This, this, this is important work, and if it's not pleasant, we're not going to do it. Let's talk strategically about uh, the work that needs to be done. By the way, every time the disciples tr- started to have a meeting, they're always trying to figure out who's the most important. Like, their meetings did not go well. <laughs> But but Jesus gets up from the table, takes off his outer garment, girds himself about with a towel so that he can serve them. He he rises from supper, He ties that garment around his waist, the Bible says. Then he poured the water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. There's some dialogue and discourse that's important to the text, but not for this morning. And then it picks back up and says, And when he had finished washing their feet, he, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus is saying, you want to know where ministry is? Stoop low. You want to see what helping people is like? Stoop low. You you want to see what, what it's like to get into people's lives? It's not just handing them a resource. People don't need something. They need somebody. To get into the mess with them and to show them there's hope and healing in Christ, and only he can bring you you can't stoop much lower than what Jesus did here. You and I can't stoop really any lower than Jesus did here in this example. But Jesus stooped lower when he carried that cross outside the city because there was no room for him in the temple. There was no room for him in the city, so he was crucified just outside the city gates, if you will. He carries that cross for crimes he didn't commit, for sins he never knew, for shame that wasn't his. It was your shame and my shame. He stooped low. Bear the humiliation and the suffering, despising the shame, but endured the cross, was crucified, hung, naked, bleeding, and dying on a cross for all the sea between two thieves that deserve their condemnation, and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He died on the cross, was buried in the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and on the third day, God said it was enough, and Christ rose from the grave, To present his blood, a living sacrifice, an eternal and sufficient atonement for every sin that you would ever commit in mind. All of humanity's, there's enough blood to cover it all from the sacrifice of our perfect Savior. He stooped lower. And he's inviting us to come and follow him, to take up our cross, to stoop low, to die to self, and to follow him. You see how relevant Nehemiah, how easy it is to get from Nehemiah? to a Savior, and to our own makeup as a church today. What a passage. Well, I tell you, powerful word here. The priests at the beginning, if we look at the pattern of the work, they set the tone for the work. That passage that that, uh, Jeremy read for us, Eliashib, they started with prayer, they continued in prayer. We'll see that. There was a clear pattern for the work. The account proceeds for all you engineers and architects in the room. They started at the sheep gate, worked counterclockwise and wound back up. Go to your Bible, look at maps, right? You know how we say, sometimes it's between Revelation and maps. Go check out a map, see if there's a map of the temple and you can see Jerusalem, the city, how it was repaired. Um, I've got some resources I can point you to. The teams all start on the gates and then work their way out. Think about the wisdom of that. Why would you start at a gate? Because it's the easiest place to get in and out of, right? It's the most vulnerable place. They start at the gates and then work on the wall around them. What's the lesson there? Can I just ask you the question? Are there gates in your life that need attention? Are are there places in your life that are too easy access for the enemy to gain a foothold? Have you you allowed some gates to get ruined in your life that need your attention? How, How are you addressing your strategy to grow in Christ? It can't just be this. I mean, if you're going to grow close close to the Lord, I love that you're here. I want you here all the time. But but we can't really do enough on Sunday morning to kind of do all the things. That's just not how life works. You need to get in the Word daily so the Word can get into you. You need to spend time with the Lord in prayer and and in worship outside of the songs that we sing on Sunday morning. It's a daily walk, a moment-by-moment surrender of walking in the Spirit of God. What What a blessing it is to walk with Jesus. But, but when there are weak areas in your life, those need attention. And they're not gonna automatically fix themselves. If, if you're struggling in an area, you need to starve that area of the thing that's pulling you away from Christ. That's how you repair the gate. Struggling with music? That music pulling you away from Jesus, not to him? Starve it. Shut that down and rebuild the gate with music that does. Struggling with entertainment? Starve it. Struggling with scrolling? Well, this is borderline heresy in 2022, I know, but starve it. Recognize the lion's share of young people exiting social media for their mental health. The jury's not out on what that does to our young people anymore. Adults, where are the gates that are weak in your life? Start there, then work on your strengths. Go for those weak places. God uses real people, ordinary people from all walks of life to do real work, often the nitty-gritty, non-glamorous work, to get the work done. Nehemiah demonstrated leadership. God called him, raised him, filled him up, and called him to lead. He set the tone for the vision of the work, and the people followed him. And everything's going amazing. And then guess who shows up? More workers? No. Sanbalat, Tobiah, and their posse. Right? Do you remember them from last week? If this is your first week with us, you, you're like, San who, what, and what now? These are folks that were complaining when they found out Nehemiah was even interested in helping. If we look at chapter four, very quickly, chapter four this morning. I'm entitling this one Rage from the Outside. They were bothered before, now they've escalated it to rage. Rage from the outside. I'm going to teach a few things from this chapter, but I, I want you to go home and spend time in the Word. And listen, even the things that I tee up for you this morning, your mind's going to jump to some cultural realities that we're facing now as the New Testament church, where there's rage from the outside pointed at us. I'm not going to get there this morning so much, but you'll get there ahead of me, I know. Look at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 4. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry. <laughs> He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Watch that. He was angry because God's work was happening, and God was doing it the way he wanted to do it. And he said in the presence of his brothers of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Then Tobiah chimes in, the Ammonite was beside him, and he says, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, will it break down their stone wall? (laughs) Means they're not even doing the job well. I believe uh, Brother Chuck, when he was cutting the tree, I know it's sad to see that beautiful Bradford pear that's been so pretty for so long, but it's also been so dead for so long. And uh, actually, kind of a hazard as he was on there, there was no flexibility I think a fox might have knocked that down if it had got on a limb, and so we're glad to take some of that down and and, and deal with that safety issue. These are the accusers who are only looking to protect their interests. They had no portion, no right, no claim on what God was leading uh, Nehemiah to do, but they were trying to mess it up. They were enemies of God. They were upset at first, but Nehemiah had showed up. And now that things are starting to happen, they're angry because it's not going the way they want it to go. They open the attack with words. Ridicule. All right, I want to see if anybody grew up when I did and knows the rest of this little lie, sorry to be harsh, that we learned when we were kids. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words. Then we grew up and found out just how powerful words were, right? You're like, I don't know who taught us that, but I know it didn't actually hurt me, but man, can't words do some damage. There's some things we can carry with us sometimes, a negative word. I think I read somewhere, my numbers may be off, but it takes 10 positive things to outweigh one negative thing spoken, right? If we had a a hundred good things happen, uh, or or you submit your work in, in school or something, and the teacher makes that one mark on it, on something passionate, you're fixated on that one negative thing. It's just the way our minds work. You've seen the old illustration. If you have a white sheet up here and there's one black dot, you don't describe it as a perfectly white sheet with one, you say, "And that black dot was just so distracting, wasn't it? It's just the way our minds work. Words can hurt, but words don't actually have to stop the work, and we choose how much power we give the words of other people. But it's the enemy's oldest weapon in the form of ridicule. Ridicule doesn't need facts Don't ever let, you know, the the haters, they don't tend to let facts get in the way of of ridiculing. And it doesn't even need an argument. But the people's morale was so strong, it wasn't affected. They were determined to do the work God's way. Look quickly with me at a few more verses as we learn some lessons from chapter 4. Verses 4 through 6. How does Nehemiah respond to this attack? Well, he prays. Does that sound familiar? How do you respond to an attack? What's your knee jerk? Nehemiah's is prayer in verses four through six: Hear our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Don't cover their guilt, and let, their sin, let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And you gotta love verse six as he starts back the narrative. So we built the wall. <laughs> And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I think it's a great example of, Re- of Romans chapter number 12, where the Bible says, as much as it's possible, be at peace with others. And just remember that God is the God of vengeance. Let God deal with vengeance. You, you be at peace with others, and when you can't be at peace with others, like we did the other week, take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. He goes back to verse 6. I notice when I say stoop low, I don't mean return insult for insult. No, they just stooped low and kept doing the work. In verse 6, he says, So we built the wall. One author notes the simplicity of this statement just proves that Sanballat and his friends were suddenly small and inconsequential. Well, at this stage, they are. But the threat begins to escalate. So they've gone from complaining to um, hurling some ridicule, and not really interested in discussion, but just hurling their position, and now they're moving and escalating even more. They go and recruit the nations represented by the outsiders around Jerusalem, that's just like the enemy, by the way, side note for today. If he can't get you in one area, he'll turn the floodgates on, and you'll, every time you turn around, it seems like something else is happening and going wrong, and you're like, what, what is going on? That's the enemy just trying to disrupt you, trying to get you to quit stooping low and trying to get you off track and distracted from what God has for you. Once their plot was discovered, they're ready to take a stand, they're ready to cause confusion, but the people of God respond, Nehemiah. 4, 9. Look at their response. They're responding strategy for strategy. We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. You see, these enemies said, we're going to go get them and we're going to surprise them. We're going to take them. But Nehemiah found out. So what do they do? They had guards ready. And so I'm imagining they're coming back. They see it. They discover their plan has been thwarted. Well, Let me summarize the way this thing moves in chapter four. When they were taunting, let's look at the strategic response. When they were taunting in the first part, they were met by prayer and work. You gotta love that, they kept working. All right, when the taunts changed to plots, the plots was met by prayer and guard duty. When the plots went into stronger threats, which is in the next section that you'll read on your own, 10 through 14, Nehemiah Nehemiah makes a general call to arms and to keep their minds on the Lord and fight. And then we get to verses 16 and 17, and I want you to notice how they worked. From that day on, half of the servants worked on construction and half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and coats of mail. That's armor. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Jerusalem, of Judah, rather who were building the wall. Those carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. He would tell them to listen for a trumpet to rally. Listen, they were ready. They were confident because they knew they were doing the Lord's work the Lord's way. Let's take a step back for a moment as Julia comes to the piano this morning. That's a quick overview of three and four, but I've given you enough for your own study to go back and spend some time in the text. Now, as you're thinking about, well, what do I do with this text on a Sunday morning? What does this matter to me? We've touched on some of that already, but let me just tell you, if you're going to walk in obedience to God, there's a work to do. Now, God's called us to a greater work, a greater work than rebuilding a wall in a city. God's called us to a greater work, I'm gonna say something that's gonna sting a little bit in 2022, than just social endeavors to make the community better god's called us to the life-saving work great commission work to share the glorious gospel of the lord jesus christ with those around us who are perishing you say they won't listen he still called us to the work we want to love in a way that invites them to listen we want to serve them and stoop low so that they wonder wait a minute why are you doing all this? And we smile and say, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about a God that stooped way lower than this to save humanity from destruction. Wow. But because there's a work to do, there's also an enemy that wants to disrupt the work. Grace Covenant, if we're going to continue to grow in our impact of the neighbors and the nations for the glory of God, we're going to have to be faithful, faithful, disciplined, and loving in our Christian witness. We're going to have to be faithful, disciplined, and loving in our covenants of marriage and in our commitments to our families and in our covenant with each other as church family. It's going to require us, just like it did in Nehemiah's day, watch this, to watch out for one another. To watch out for one another, which means we need to be in one another's lives. I don't mean getting all up in people's business or grill, but I mean just shy of that. That's what covenant relationship looks like. We need to know the struggles that are going on. We need to be able to have some safe spaces within Grace Covenant Church, among the community where we can open up and say, here's a gate I need to repair, and a brother or sister says, I'll help you. I'll help you. I'll stand with you there. It's going to take personal responsibility for our own spiritual fitness, but also recognizing we are not in this alone. The Bible has called the local church to build one another up for the work that God has called us to. In fact, in Philippians 1, 27, 28, and here's the verse right before you get a moment to reflect. God said that our lie Our manner of living can point to the gospel of Christ. Paul tells the Philippians, whether I'm there or not, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not, how appropriate is this, not frightened in anything by your opponents. The rage from the outside doesn't shake us in our mission. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction. But of our salvation, we're on the right side of history while the nations rage. Let's pray this morning. Father, we pray that we would be committed to your work, your way. What does that even mean? Well, it means us living our lives in such a way that people are drawn to you. It means us caring and sharing with one another and for one another so that no one lacks in the church, God. It means us investing in the generations around us, God, for the glory of your kingdom, Means us being faithful men and women and girls and boys committed to live out the gospel while the outsiders wonder what in the world is going on. We can't do it alone, Lord, and we're so grateful that you didn't call us to. You gave us the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us, and you gave us the church to belong to, to be a part of, as we believe together. What a blessing. Father, we ask for much fruit in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.